0: Hey you guys, today's episode is brought to you by LitBreaker. LitBreaker is an online advertising network for book people. If you want to reach book people on the internet, go to LitBreaker.com and learn how you can reach book people on the internet by advertising on a bunch of great literary bookish sites all at once, or you can advertise piecemeal. You can pick the sites you want. It's very user-friendly. LitBreaker.com. This is an advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God.
1: You are not alone
0: just one person at just one time, right? Right. Everybody, how's it going? Uh, My name is Brad Listy. This is it. This is other people. This is me left to my own devices. This is you in a semi-healthy consumption ritual. I almost forgot how to begin the show there. Did you catch that? I have sort of a pattern that I've adopted that I usually stick to, but I just sort of fell out of it momentarily. My name is Brad Listy. Have I said that yet? I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. I have a great show for you. Uh, I've got to be quick here. I'm logging shows. I'm in a very compressed time frame. I'm trying to record shows. So if you hear uh, a sense of, if you detect a sense of urgency in me, it's that plus the fact that it's very hot in here when the garage door is closed. I'm in a fight for my life. If I'm in here too long, it could end ugly. My guest today is Mike Edison. He's the former publisher of the marijuana magazine, High Times and uh, the former editor-in-chief of Screw Magazine. He has worked as a correspondent for Penthouse Magazine, for Hustler Magazine. He is an accomplished musician. He is a professional wrestler. He is the author of 28 pornographic novels and a memoir called I Have Fun Everywhere I Go, which was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. His latest memoir... His brand new memoir is called You Are a Complete Disappointment. It is available now from Sterling Books. We are going to get right to the conversation because, again, it's 114 degrees in here, and I'm pressed for time. Is that okay with you? Plus, Mike is very interesting. I feel like I've built him up. His biography speaks for itself. This is Mike Edison. His new memoir is called You Are a Complete Disappointment.
1: Disappointment. Yeah, you are a complete disappointment. These were, in fact, my father's last words to me on his deathbed, literally on his on his deathbed, like one of these crazy scenes. Uh, I always say, you know, it was weird, but I'm not sure whether it was John Waters weird or David Lynch weird, but it was plenty scary. And I went to visit him. It was a Father's Day, and he was in Arizona, where I went to retire. And I went out to visit him, and he was in the hospital, and he had the ma- oxygen mask on. You know, he was, like, breathing through this oxygen mask, and the tubes were just shooting out of his arms, and numbers were just, like, exploding, and all this bi- biotech. And he said, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. There's something I want to tell you. And I walked over to the side of his bed, and he said, you are a complete disappointment. <laughs> and he was just, just getting started. This is just the beginning of, of uh, what's become known as now as the you suck soliloquy. <laughs> <laughs> like, you are broken, and you need to be fixed. And he just—he'd rehearsed this obviously. he had quite a few times, and I'd heard a lot of this growing up. Um, my dad was a kind of a bully, an emotional bully, and a narcissist, and not too happy with the career path I had chosen. And he just kept uh, which was beating me to be a writer and a musician and artist—three um, things which um, you know don't offer enough recompense, I think, in his world and the way he measures success. And uh, you know, you want to be an artist; it means you're a dreamer. And in my father's world, dreams create instability, right? You know, I mean dreams are dangerous things. It's subversive right. to want to do these sort of things. And if I were to have success uh with my system, which was built on freedom and following my own star and not being you know, not doing what I was told to do, it meant his system was completely flawed. Because he was a successful guy, you know, using using the standard yardstick. I mean he had, you know, made a lot of money in business. What did he do? He was a real estate guy and he did okay. And uh you know, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, you know, Brad, if you had met him, you would like him because he was very charming on the surface, but it was about, you know, a puddle deep. And, you know, he was very big on Dale Carnegie and, you know, how to win <laughs> friends and influence people. You're yeah. laughing. Are you familiar with the
0: work? Yeah. You know, I mean, just, and it's like nothing against it. Cause I don't think the, I mean, listen, the advice isn't terrible. No, of course not. But there's something about sunshine sales, you know, people <laughs> selling you sunshine and like a good life. And uh, I'm always a little leery. I don't know if that's just like a inherent skepticism or cynicism or what.
1: Well, you should because it's a way to make friends quickly. It's a way to small talk people. It's, you know, it's about, you know, the handshake and the eye contact and getting people to talk about themselves, which is great. You know, if you're a politician or a member of the Rotary Club or a podcaster, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's not deep at all. It's a very, very shallow uh, system, you know, social system. And that's sort of where my father was. You could go out to dinner with him, and he would talk more to the waitress about where they went to school, you know, or, or whatever, whatever bullshit was going on, rather than have a conversation with me sitting across from him um, about, about anything. Yeah. So here I am in this hospital room, and this is his last. Last salvo. And did he ever do Toastmasters? Was he like a good public speaker? Uh, I th- he did some, some public speaking in, in, in his business. But again, it was all this kind of this kayfabe bullshit. And kayfabe is a word I use throughout the book. It's a professional wrestling word. It's, like, it's an old carnival term. And kayfabe is the illusion that everything you see is real. Okay? That everything, uh, when you see a sadistic marine drill sergeant on TV battling an Iranian oil sheik. This is who they really are. When they go home, they will continue to be Iranian you know, sheiks and drill sergeants. And um, they never hang out at that hotel bar together. And, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> Roddy Piper once told me that Hulk Hogan is such a, such a jerk that he wears his spandex when he mows the lawn. <laughs> you know, but that's it. That was his gimmick. And he lived it. And that was my father had this kayfabe thing. So even if he was speaking, it was never from the heart. You know, I never felt it was never what we call in professional wrestling parlance, which is a metaphor, I I use it in the book, a shoot, meaning it wasn't legit. It was always worked. So you could never really believe what you were hearing or seeing. Why do you think that is, though? Because I think, you know, some people
0: have a hard time accessing their true selves or their real feelings. And it's like (laughs) they they develop this sort of game or this this performance that takes its place. It feels like kind of a more
1: comfortable fallback position. Well, it's not always... uh, Easy to expose yourself. I mean, to even I mean to write a book and to be naked and raw and, and try to really be, be honest. It's, it's it's rough stuff. Most people definitely don't want to do it. My father uh, and, and I bring up the wrestling, you know, the metaphor, because the speech went on in this hospital room. And He says, well, you know, you think you're an important writer in New York, but you're not. No one wants to read your shit. And the last thing he said to me, and this is like getting crazy. The numbers are beeping, buzzing and nurses are running in and out. He says, I can't believe someone as smart as you likes professional wrestling. <laughs> and they literally carted him off to die. It was the last time I saw him. And I leave it. I was like, how could something so, you know, like, like stupid, you know, really? He was going to yell at me because of what I watch on TV. Right. You know, this is what's on his mind. He's got some seriously unresolved is- issues. But my father was a snob. And this is coming back to like showing you the real, the real true uh, self or maintaining this gimmick of genteel perfection. And he was a snob. And the fact that I was, a, I am a pro wrestling fan. I used to have this gig. Why, first, how did you get into it? It was my first job when I, I dropped out of college for the first time. Uh, not a popular decision with my parents. Where would you go to school? I went to, that was the NYU film school. Right. And my, actually the crazy thing was when I got in, my father said, yeah, you're never going to make it. No one makes it. You're wasting your time. It's a nice guy, your father. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you would have liked him because, right. again, right. you know, because <laughs> he had, he had that, that thing that he could turn the charm on, and a lot of my friends never saw that side of him. Now um, oh, you'll never make it. You're wasting your time. And I got this job. I dropped out, and I got this great job running this pro wrestling magazine. I wanted to be a writer, and I was taking a lot of pictures. um, And it was just sort of one thing led to the next, and I fell into this gig. It was really fun. We had this office in the Empire State Building. I was like 23 years old. Yeah. And I had my own office on like the 86th floor of the Empire State Building and uh, back then they used to promote the building with a giant inflatable King Kong once in a while. That was was the best. And, you (laughs) know, this was like the Hulk Hogan era, you know, the classic MTV Hulk Hogan era. It was a really good time to be in the business, and it was a great way for me to learn The business of, well, besides wrestling, I mean the magazine business, which meant like doing layouts. It was all old-fashioned. There was no Quark or InDesign or anything like this at the time. You know, we typed it, and I brought it to an old Jewish man at the corner to type set it, and we laid it out on mechanicals. And you learned how to do all all this stuff and to manage a staff of writers and whatnot and it was a pretty cool gig, you know. It was a big news, big newsstand magazine called uh, Wrestling's Main Event. Okay, the number one magazine for Matt fans today. I
0: might have, read, I might have read that a little bit when I, I was like, I went through a, a short phase when I was a kid where I got into WWF.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a total newsstand magazine. It was, every, it was everywhere. Junkyard Dog. That was the era, totally. Uh, Rowdy, Rowdy Roddy Piper, yeah. the Macho Man Randy Savage, all those cats. Yeah, you know, and some. We, I knew a lot of those guys. So it was like this great thing. We'd like be running around. I mean, was, the kayfabe again was that we just made it all up. Um, if you really believed what I was. Running Writing. We were, like, flying, you know, to Siberia, you know, to some secret Soviet wrestling camp where they trained the communist wrestlers so they could overthrow the Hulk Hogan regime. Yeah. You know, but um, but the truth was we did hang around with some of the guys. Who were very nice to us. We knew Ric Flair really well. was always nice to us and a handful of other cats. Um, did you ever see the uh, – what was the
0: movie with uh, – oh, God, the wrestling movie by – The Mickey Rock movie. The Mickey Rourke. Movie, the the
1: Mickey Rourke. The yeah, I, I liked it. Was uh, it accurate? I mean, it's some of it, actually. Well, if um, strippers in Elizabeth, New Jersey do not look like Marissa Tomei. So so in that part, <laughs> in that Hollywood. respect, no. Yeah. But actually, the guys at the end of the movie were willing to take a bump and really hurt themselves for like no money, for the glory, the guts and the glory. That's really true. And this sort of has been circuit of... Uh, You know, wrestling at high schools for guys who are, you know, almost wass or also rans
0: Backyards.
1: Yeah. And everybody wanting to do it because, you know, it's like the punk rock mentality, too. I mean, lots of people play a gig for no money just to get on stage, you know, once in their lives. Same, same Same kind of thing.
0: Right. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow And then did you uh like you said you were you were learning how to like run a, like a room full of writers? it doesn't seem like something like for somebody who has literary ambitions it's not the most like
1: obvious step to go write about professional wrestling but oh it gets better it gets better brad because after that I wrote porn novels yeah and I ended up writing twenty 28- eight important novels i mean legit novels okay
0: but what how does that square with what you you know initially set out to do did you set out with a goal or did you just say i just want to go to new york and do some crazy shit and find my way it was a
1: different time it was a way to hustle i was getting paid for it too so i was a working writer and i didn't know what i wanted to write probably i wanted to be a novelist at the time i had certainly just dropped out of film school and wanted to do these you know grand epic things or also maybe some small and you know and dirty things my tastes are are pretty varied i still want to write a hard You know, a hard-boiled detective novel. Maybe one day. I think Thomas Pinchon wrote the one that I wanted to write. Not that I'm in his league, but I like the one he wrote. What, The Inherent Vice? Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of where I was headed, and now I'm kind of too intimidated (laughs) to do my my, my own. That's
0: why you should never read anything. Yeah,
1: my own Raymond Chandler, who is uh, definitely my all-time favorite writer. Um, I was doing journalism a little bit. We were reviewing some stuff. I was just trying to find myself. I realized I hated writing about music largely because I am a musician. And I dislike other music writers because they they weren't and you know, I didn't want to write puff pieces and I saw a lot of writing that wasn't actually about music in any way shape or form it's hard to write about music and like dancing about architecture right yeah. like, like they say I don't know I fell into this thing and it was, it was fun you know writing about wrestling was really fun it was totally creative because like I said we were you know here we're at the 21 club with Fred Blassie having dinner discussing his plans to overthrow <laughs> you know the WWF <laughs> and uh, it was good and what happened what ended up happening was I went to, back to school I went to Columbia University and my father said to me they're never gonna let you in, okay, because you work for a wrestling magazine, and they're never going to allow that there at (laughs) Columbia University. He was an Ivy League guy himself, and what they said was like, holy cow, you're 23 and you're running this magazine. We think that shows a lot of motivation and you obviously know how to write. I, guess I was writing thousands of words a week. Yeah, I know it was pro wrestling, but Still. not Vanity Fair. But yeah, the mechanics are, are the same. It's magical realism, right? It, it sure, sure as hell is. <laughs> um, really creative nonfiction. Uh, and they, they said, yeah, come on in. And in fact, we're going to give you a pass on the, the Columbia you know, you know, expository class, which we make everybody take because obviously – you know, it'll be a waste of your time. Um, so it was amazing. Not only did I got in, but I got in with, like, you know, the Golden Key. And my, my father was like, it, it, again, it upset him. Instead of being proud of me for getting into Columbia University, he was upset because it questioned his system of doing things. Yeah, so, I mean, like, it's like a,
0: a man of very rigid ideology or belief about how the world works.
1: Not only that, he was a miserable fuck, you know, and I got, I just got to say it because, again, if you're screaming at your kid, you know, on, with your last breath, Um, about professional wrestling, you know, and I I listen. I know it splits crowds. I know everyone you know that's listening to this isn't isn't a wrestling fan, but hopefully they're not yelling at their kids because they like comic books or horror movies or roller coasters. Um, I berate my daughter every night for Harry Potter. (laughs) It's a ritual. I've got all the Harry Potter books right next to my bed. (laughs) Do you really? I do. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Someone gave me a couple. I was. the flu one time and someone said, here, read these while you're in bed. And, yeah, and you know you what? Like, I really like them. Yeah. You don't have to justify it. Like they're good. I, do, you know, I don't believe in the, the concept of a guilty pleasure because if it's bringing me pleasure, why should I feel guilty? Right. I mean, well, it, and
0: that's why I kind of admire the way that you got into all this, because I think sometimes people start out with like really lofty ambitions and they have this very high minded view of where they're going to go. And they, um, and I'm, I could be speaking about myself, you know, to a degree, um, I didn't go out. I think if I could do it over again, I might just jump in and get my hands dirty more. And it sounds like that's kind of what you did. You just you just
1: went for it and just tried stuff. It made sense, you know, just once, just, just, just to go. And, you know, it's, of course, it's always easier to, uh, you know, uh, beg forgiveness than ask permission and, and all of that. But I, I felt really good that I was a working writer. I had to work. I had to keep the lights on. I had to pay the rent. I'm, I'm always, you know, honestly very suspicious of uh, people people who wear writer on their sleeve but really haven't done anything because as I been you know writing smart writing for screw writing for hustler writing. I wrote, I wrote enough penthouse letters to put a down payment on my apartment <laughs> and I've nothing against poetry. You know? Yeah. Uh but I, I was paying the rent and yet the weird thing was I would be getting sideways looks from other writers. And this is me with the big air quotes, right? Yeah. Because they didn't dig what I was doing. My first book was on faris Strauss Giroux, like one of the greatest writers imprints you know in the world. I was very proud of that. And um I know my editor who's a total rock star uh, Denise Oswald and she's great. Um, she said, some people said to her, You signed a guy who works for High Times I ran into High Times too. Yeah, so yeah, aside from the like- sex and the Rose Wrestling, add drugs. You know. <laughs> How did you get the High Times gig? You were the some, publisher? I was the publisher. Some people you know, they say that's not a resume, that's a crime scene. <laughs> it was a joke. I was I was writing for High Times. I knew some guys and we uh, I had been writing a column for Screw Magazine, which was great. Al Goldstein was was a mentor to me, a true First Amendment hero. I mean, a guy who did real-time for free speech issues, um, you, know, not, you know, unlike that Queen Hefner who likes to put on a, a good picture. But talk about gimmicks and kayfabe. Right. There's a guy who's living the gimmick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I met somebody, and I think some of the guys from <laughs> Screw Played Poker with some of the guys from High Times, and we were at a party, and I says, oh, my God, you should write for High Times. We know you. You know Everybody knows you, Mike. You should write for High Times. And it was great. In fact, my editor at the time was John Holmstrom, who started Punk Magazine. Uh, John's a pretty celebrated uh, cartoonist and you know, did the covers for the first Ramones Records and turned out to be a big wrestling fan. <laughs> he, goes, he goes i know you i saw your picture with sergeant slaughter and i was like what are you doing reading that magazine you know it's like john you're you're, you're 30 years old <laughs> uh, but he's like no no i love wrestling and, and, I, and I love that crazy stuff you're you should write for high times i'll set it up so so i did and i became friends with those guys the crazy thing is and this is all my, my first book i have fun everywhere i go which which was the fsg book um was when I got there, I'd, I'd been a writer, and then somewhere along the way I left, I moved off, I lived in Spain for a little while, was playing in my rock and roll band, I'd been a business journalist for a little while. You know, somewhere along the way I got some real chops. I, I knew, you know, how to. Run a magazine, and uh, I knew how to do all the advertising department, and edit- other editors, and illustrators, and the art department, and whatnot. And they said, you know, they were kind of headhunted me to be the new editor in chief. They needed someone to run the magazine. It's very chaotic over at High Times, as you can imagine. I can, is everyone is everyone baked? I'm fucking stoned. It's like it's like herding <laughs> cats over there. It's like. Um, but I'm actually glad to hear that because it's it would be it would be disappointing to hear that. Like actually, no, it's a really sedate place. People don't even smoke. Well, the problem is, it's like. Groundhog Day for one. So like every day you have the same meeting again because no one can remember the meeting they had the day before. <laughs> the first line of of my book I find it for where I go is. The next person who suggests putting Bob Marley on the cover is going to be looking for a new job.
0: <laughs> and, and, and they can't really crack down on people smoking on the job if it's high times. I mean, well,
1: that's the problem. I, I did. I was told to. And I sort of got myself into a bad spot because my corporate bosses, the people on the magazine, said, you've got to tell people to stop smoking weed because, well, <laughs> you, well, for one, we got a complaint from a pregnant woman on the floor above. And that's, that's bad. Okay, that's a lawsuit you're not going to win. Yeah. You know, and and she's going to end her kid's going to end up Owning High Times, <laughs> right. right? And the people in High Times just didn't it's get it. No, we're legacy. High Times. You know, we do what we want. Said, you just can't smoke pot with impunity anywhere you want, especially you know, ten years ago, the world was a different place. Yeah.
0: And, and by the way, I, f- I feel like High Times should be applauded for helping to normalize uh, cannabis.
1: I listen. I'm really proud of my uh, experience and history with with High Times. I mean, being the publisher of High Times magazine, this sort of outlaw magazine, it's a culture and a voice that I thought definitely needed to exist, and not not just exist. It needed it needed a shot in the arm at the time. I was really 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 proud of it, um, you know. Sales were kind of flagging when I got there, and you know, honestly, people there are kind of stone and they're not really deadline oriented. <laughs> and I went from being everybody's friend when I was a writer to being like like a fascist when I became the boss. Like, with, like but like that. Like, I didn't even, like, walk to the you're door of the set You're They were like, you're the man now. Yeah. Right? Which makes, which, and, and because you were one of us, it's worse because now you're a crypto-fascist. Yeah. Like, what the <laughs> fuck are you even talking about? It? You know? I'm just trying to sell some magazines. Um, well, you know, and it's like, this is the thing about,
0: uh you know, pot uh, decriminalization and legalization that I've heard said, and I agree, is that, you know, it's great that, that uh, Washington, Alaska, Colorado, Oregon, uh, hopefully California in November, mm-hmm. you know, but these early states that do it. They got to get it right because if they fuck it up and if like five-year-olds are eating weed candy and then it's not
1: going to progress. So it's,
0: you know, I feel like there's a responsibility that goes along with it to get it right and to make sure that like we act like adults about it.
1: I agree 100% and it's got to be a slightly slow turning of the wheel, you know, to to, to get it right. But on on the other hand, I mean, I always, oh, what about the kids? What about the kids? Well, we have lots of things that aren't kid-friendly in the world. Booze. (laughs) I mean, you know, you you, you name it. It's like, I mean, yeah, whatever. Dirty magazines. What about about power tools? I I mean, of course, it's not for kids. And of course, it's our responsibility to keep, you know, drugs and electric sauce out of the hands of toddlers. Yeah. Uh, Like be a parent. Um, But I'm surprised because people used to say to me when I was running high times, do you think pot will ever become legalized or in your lifetime? And I always thought it would be kind of like de facto criminalized, like people would just stop prosecuting it because they realized the war on drugs was just a horrendous thing that the the human price was way too high, that it was a failure. But to actually legalize it, I just couldn't imagine a politician uh, saying, oh, yes, let's turn off the drug war on drugs because the opposition will always say you see he wants to give drugs to our children yeah because that's always the easiest that's, thing that's thing always demonize. the leap and it's hard to defend that but that, you, that but you know fear. what but you know what it's
0: as soon as the majority opinions start to tip and like you know you have 56 or 58 percent of uh, americans or citizens of a state who want decriminalization or legalization suddenly the politicians you know, they changed their tune.
1: And it took a while for common sense to catch up, and also there's a huge money issue too. Don't to, to yeah. you know, don't forget. I mean, the money from the legal marijuana, you know, medical or recreational. It's it's incredible. It's a huge. It's a multi billion dollar but industry. It, it's waiting. always been the biggest cash crop in America. It's a very open secret. Yeah. So, but if the government sponsors all sorts of vice, you know, the government takes its piece of the liquor business and the gambling business. Why not the pot business? Yeah. Considering you know the rel it's relatively benign compared to everything else. Yeah. Like,
0: like, okay. So let's do a comparison because you've written porn novels, um, worked for screw. Yeah. You know, so my favorite job ever. Okay. So but feelings about porn because porn, I think you can make a a pretty persuasive case that it can have a really corrosive effect. Like especially
1: internet porn, people just sitting in front, like the dehumanizing repetitiveness. I agree with that a hundred percent. Um, my book that I wrote about pornography, dirty, dirty, dirty was a book though about, uh, the newsstand very specifically about sex on the newsstand going from Hugh Hefner and playboy. And just after uh, the second world war, um, Right through, I talk about Bob Guccione, which is an amazing, like, to rags story. It's, it's incredible how he lost his fortune trying to build portable nuclear reactors and making Caligula uh, and Penthouse, which was such a great magazine. Uh, Larry Flint, who uh, I worked for a little bit. I was a writer, a freelancer for Hustler. Did you ever uh, meet him? Uh, sure. And he was very friendly and uh, accessible to me when I wrote my book. And Al Goldstein, who's not as nationally famous, but was very famous at the time, and especially to those other three guys with Screw Magazine, which started early. It started in 1968, Penthouse and... Hustler didn't start to later. No sort of this like free speech, hippie anti war uh hedonist uh newspaper. Uh, which which was great. And I was this very outspoken, loud Jew, and you know, you know, chomping on a cigar and screaming at everybody. Very, very smart guy. I was, I was just, just enamored of him. So that book sort of goes from Eisenhower to Clinton. And that's sort of when the internet started to happen and this internet porn sort of knocked everyth- you know, everything off the newsstand because, you know, look, there are no pic- nude pictures in Playboy now, right? Yeah. Uh, which, which, is, which is insanity. And Penthouse is out of business. And uh, Al Goldstein died penniless. Goldstein died penniless. Larry Flint's the winner because he's still got the building over there in Wilshire Boulevard with his name on it. But it's not from the magazine, though. What's it from, like, the the merchandising, the licensing? Well, he was smart. He saw the Internet coming. He was was smart. He saw it and he adapted and started producing very high-quality pornography for the internet and charging people for it. It's not that expensive, really. It's like, you know, if you're paying $5 a month or even $10 a month, if you got a few hundred thousand people subscribing, it adds up very quickly. Sure. But he saw it coming. He knew that print was going to be a dinosaur and it was going to, like, die in the tar pits, you know. And, and that was it. He also has a casino. That's right. Larry. So Larry's a business guy. You know, he got thrown into the free speech. He game. doesn't have a gold wheelchair for nothing, right? Oh man, you know. <laughs> and he go up to his office, and everything is gold. Everything is like glitter. What and is gold? What but, is it? but the crazy thing is, in his office, he's got all these like Remingtons and all these like impressionist paintings, and uh, and but when you get up close, you realize they're all fake. Oh, it's fantastic. It's all like set dressing. <laughs> you know, right. it, it's great. It's kind of like this nouveau hillbilly rich, you know. Yeah. And he knows it. He, he says himself, he's a big fucker from Kentucky. He he didn't. <laughs> he set out to make money. He was, you know, he was, you know at a strip club in Cincinnati and that's how the magazine came up he decided he could do a a print product to promote his Hustler Club and it took off of course it really took off when he had printed the naked pictures of Jackie Onassis which had been in Screw first by the way yeah Um, but he was the wrong guy to pick with when they came after him on Free Speech and Obscenity uh, trials. This was not a guy who was educated. This was not some guy who was, you know, you know, really waving the flag like that until they picked on him. And that's when he said, fuck you. No way. You can't tell me what I can and cannot read. Tough and guy. He stood up. Very tough guy. And and uh, and a hero. And well, I,
0: and then the other thing he did, what was it, a few years ago when he started to threaten to out the sexual uh, misconduct of people in Congress. Oh,
1: my God. The, the Speaker of the House had to resign because of him. This was during the, the Clinton uh, uh, what's the word? The, the Monica word? Lewinsky. Thing? The Monica Lewinsky uh, imbroglio. Is that the word I'm looking that's, for? That's the word, yeah. Um, and just the hypocrisy. Because Larry, like uh, Al Goldstein, these guys hated hypocrisy. That's mm. what they fought against. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to say that my book, uh, I don't really talk about the relative morality of p- pornography or I don't try to view it through a feminist lens or try to put it in context. It's just, it, it's an is. It's an American fact of life. And what I write about is just how much sex we can handle as a society, just how much free speech we can handle. And it's a very weird uh, place America, right? Because we, we seem to really love sex, but the, like we, we fear it and yet run towards it, you know, or yeah, embrace it and run away from it at the same time. It's a complicated
0: it's, relationship. It
1: is, you know, and... Uh, and I think hopefully we're I don't even know. I mean, I'm I just every day, I, you know, you look at the news and people are still trying to pass sodomy laws. And, oh, my God, what's, you know, you know happening with transgender people and the, just the fear mongering that's going on. You think we're, we're past that, but we really
0: what, not. What is it with people and sex? That's a good, it's a good question because uh, I feel like the more conservative, like the socially conservative strains of American, uh, you know, American life are obsessed with. Their genitals. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I'm They're constantly worried about sex in some way, and they're angry about it in some way. Wow. Sex and anger is like the worst possible combination. <laughs> it's not good. It's so bad. Like, who gives a shit what somebody wants to do? I don't even think about it. I like, I don't care at all. Of course
1: yeah. not. Right? Like, why would you get of course all not, twisted but, up about this? Uh, you know, this is maybe a topic for another time, but it's, uh, you know, it's religious morality, and it's basically just a control issue. It's crowd control. Yeah. That's it. I mean, you know, and, and it's awful, and it's, it's fear mongering, and it's trying to to lead you know with, with fear. Um, so, what about uh, like growing up in your household?
0: By the way, we never talked about your mother. Yeah, where was she in all this?
1: Um, well, uh, my mom died a couple of years ago, and my dad bullied her as well, like with his checkbook. You know, he called her a, a brand whore because she had a Gucci bag and. She liked uh, some designer labels. And the weird thing was my dad, what he never got was his own labels, L.L. Bean and Patagonia, spoke just as as loudly just to a different audience. You know, oh, my God, that's garish. And he just didn't like it. But, you know, my dad had this sort of part of the gimmick of, you know, it was sort of like this affluent humility. It was very studied. You know, he only had, like, one outfit, like, these gray slacks and this blue blazer. And that was, like, you know, Spider-Man gets dressed to work in his spider suit, and my dad got dressed to work in this preppy, k-fabe superhero outfit. Um, what kind of house? Ha- do you have a big house? No, it was, very, it was kind of an awful house, actually. Like, it was kind of like a cookie-cutter, split-level suburban house, and... The weird thing was, my mom told me later, uh, we started, when I started writing the book, and before my mom got sick and died, we had been talking about it, and she says, oh, I really love this house. It was just around the corner from where you moved. It was a much better school district. I think the house cost $3,000 more, and your father said, no, we're not doing it. And she said, that's when I realized that we weren't in this together, that he was trying to prove a point that he was in control. And That's really the word for him, huh? It was, yeah. Control. I, yeah. and. His relationships were always based on him being in control, of people owing him something, of him getting kudos or props for something. Uh, I never knew him to have any really great long-term relationships, except for his uh, his second wife. But she was just sort of in lockstep with him. It was very odd. I mean, it was almost sycophantic, um, the way they, she related to him. Uh, but again, like his friendships, when he died, his best friend in the world seemed to be like the guy who fixed his Lexus. Oh, he's this really neat kid. You got to meet him. And there was, I didn't know anybody else that my father had known for a long period of time. It was always people that he somehow were employees or somehow in control of or owed him something. Or on the other side, somebody who was much more affluent than he was, and which he could somehow, you know, use, you know, for his sort of social climbing aspirations.
0: Okay, and then what about his childhood? Like, do you know where this comes from? Did you spend time in therapy, or did you... Oh, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. So how do, you, well, how do you get to the bottom well, of it?
1: Okay, let me I say this, first of all. This book has a happy ending, okay? It <laughs> starts with, you are a complete disappointment, but it, it, but there's a happy ending, and the happy ending is is me. And the book is about being the guy you want to be, not the guy you were told you you should be. Right, um, because this
0: is a heavy thing. that This is a heavy thing to lay on, on a child. To have a father who's bullying like that, to have a father who is um, as abusive as your dad could be verbally and emotionally to you, a lot of people
1: don't get out from under that. Like, no. how, do, how do you do it? Yeah, and I wish there were an easy answer. So I ended up on uh, seeing a shrink. I was like the last Jewish guy in New York who didn't have a therapist. <laughs> and after you know my father died and telling me you know you're such a, you know you're such a disappointment. I kind of walked around the city thinking, you know, you know, I'm broken. I don't need, you know, no one wants to read my shit. All the stuff that he had told me. I'm a writer. I get a lot of rejection. It's, yeah. it's, it's part of the business. Right. Um, and every time I'd get a publisher passing on a project, they'd be like, maybe I'm not that good. And a friend of mine had suggested, well, why don't you go talk, talk to, talk to my, my therapist, maybe do some good. It was a bad summer because after my dad died, I broke up with my girlfriend who I was crazy in love with. And uh, I, I got fired from my job. I was laid off. This is, you know, at a time just sort of suffering the economy. I was a, a long-time book editor, and editing these great music bios and jazz bios and stuff, it was, it was a good gig. And um, they were like, well, you know, you're, you're fired, but if you want, you can still freelance for us. It was like one of those deals, like, yeah, we can't pay for your health care anymore. Um, we're not putting you on salary. But if you want, you can, you know, work on a project basis for, you know, about a tenth of what we're paying you now. right. Anyway, it was a it was a pretty bad bad summer. I was like, you know, oh man, I'm like single and you know unemployed, single unemployed guy with a cat, and then my cat up and died. <laughs> oh god! So I was like, oh man, you know. And my friend said, well, you should go see uh, my therapist, Doctor Headshrinker. I call her very very lovingly. She was kind of like a like Doctor Melfi in The Sopranos. I had no idea what to expect from uh, going to a therapist. You know, what do I know? Woody Allen and Fraser Crane and uh, Lucy and Peanuts is kind of my dream psychiatrist. Right. You know, it's only a nickel. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. <laughs> uh, but she was great, and I said you know, I, I, am I overstating this? Am I, am I walking around his baggage? I mean, like, you know, poor little, you know, Jewish boy whose daddy didn't love him enough. And she says, no, you know, you were absolutely abused. I was like, well, it's like he beat me. And she's like, no, you're wrong. What do you call that? Because since I was eight, I was told I was a loser. You know, I wanted to play the drums when I was eight years old. My father told me it's a waste of time. You're no good. You're not musical. You know, you won't do it. What did he want you to do? doctor lawyer i don't know supreme court justice right i don't i don't know you know that you know that old joke uh but that the first woman president she's being inaugurated it's inauguration day the first woman jewish president right this is this is like a double (laughs) (laughs) mitzvah and she's on the steps of the capitol being sworn in and her mom is in the front row in the audience and she turns to the guy next to him and says you see that woman up there on the Capitol steps, the one with her hand on the Bible? And the guy says, yeah. And the woman says, her brother's a doctor.
0: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so What is it with people want their kids to be? My dad's dad wanted him to be a doctor. Like, I guess it's just a safety thing. It reflects well on the family.
1: My brothers are, my one brother's a very successful Wall Street guy. My other brother's a lawyer. Listen, my dad has a hard time with the narrative of- And how the, was he with them? Was he better with re- them? Re- emotionally remote, but kind.
0: Okay. You know? But because you were like the ne'er do well, you were the one who strayed from the path that he had set out for you.
1: And the firstborn, and I was definitely like the largest moving target, you know, within firing range. So but I, the
0: first is usually the one who is the do gooder, right? Like the straight, straight arrow, typically. <laughs> what happened? That, to you? that
1: what happened? <laughs> what what happened? You know, I just followed my own star. I don't know. I'm, my story is not that weird. I mean, I heard a rock and roll record when I was a kid. There was a big '50s revival thing going on with American Graffiti and Happy Days, and all, all this. Stuff and I heard Chuck Berry and I was like, Oh my God, this is what I want to do. Yeah. As I, it was like one of those moments, and lots of people who love rock and roll have that moment. They sure. heard the Ramones, they heard whatever it was. They heard James Brown, uh, you know, the guys in Led Zeppelin heard Eddie Cochran, you know, the Beatles heard Little Richard. I mean, everybody has that 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 moment, and mine was listening to Chuck Berry and you know, a, a, during a fifties revival, which quickly led to the harder stuff, namely the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and whatnot. But I'll tell you what, I mean, within a few years, I had my own punk rock band, and we were opening for the Ramones, you know, and we were suddenly playing in Berlin and, and Rome and Paris and Tokyo, and all these things happened. My father was like, you're wasting your time. You're no good at it. I'm like, dude, you know, someone just sent me tickets. We're going this week. We're going to Seattle and New Orleans and Austin, and then we're going back to Europe to do Spain. No, it's a waste of time. If you're any good, I would have heard of you. Like, dude, you're a fifty year old guy. I'm a twenty two year old in a punk rock band. Where would you have heard of me? I mean, under what, what circumstances would our worlds possibly intersect anyway. Right. You're just gonna have to take it on faith that this is working out, okay. Yeah, I'm going to Spain. You know, and when I started writing books and I said, Man, right, no one wants no no one's gonna publish it. It's a waste of time. And then I got this deal with FSG and it was a it was great, you know. For about five seconds I was the next big thing. Um no, not gonna happen we really here this. I'll bet you right now it's not going to happen. I'm like, you're going to bet money against me? <laughs> you to it's like it's like wow, that's that's fucked up, dude. Yeah, you know. So how do you work through this though? I want to get like, uh, how do you find some back back to Doctor Headshrinker? Yeah. Well, I mean, I say in my book, you know. Yeah. First of all, I had to. It was well, it wasn't easy. I had to find compassion for my father. I had to realize that he was a tragic figure. That if there's anybody who's a disappointment in this relationship, it certainly isn't me. Uh, no matter what I've been told or gaslit into believing, uh, and that's you know, and I had to learn forgiveness, which is not easy. I'm not saying you wake up one day and say I forgive, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, and you know about you know. I mean, I mean Christians are very big on forgiveness; they give it out like you know Halloween candy. Jews, not so much. We haggle over everything. <laughs> Buddhists have their own way of looking at it. But for me, what I had to realize is that. To forgive my father, it wasn't for him. It was, forgiving him wasn't f- for him. It was for my benefit. Yeah. Because when you untether yourself from this sort of anger, the kind of anger that I was carrying around, suddenly he's not in control. Being angry with him put him in a position of control still. And the weird thing with him saying to me on his deathbed, you, you are a complete disappointment. I mean, he was punching down at me. He wanted to have the last word. He wanted to show me that he was still in control. But walking around without this anger... It, you know, it's freedom. It's bliss, and that's what you know. This book is you know about. In a lot of ways, it's about uh, remembering to be happy and choosing happiness. My parents were miserable because they didn't choose happiness. Somehow, they thought there was uh, you know an acceptable alternative to this, and they lived in fear. You know, fear of fat and fear of salt and fear of carbohydrates, fear of spicy food, fear of you know liquor, fear of being silly. You know, or frivolous. You know, less you know less they like, appear less than adult. In public, I mean, my whole life, they told me, grow up, grow up. I'm eight years old. Give me a break. You know, <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, what are you going to grow up? I don't know. <laughs> I, you know. I'm eight years old. I'm still working you on know, it. Let's, let's check back with me like about the same time next year. Yeah. I'm still working on it. But even at eight years old, I say it's not about growing up. It's about evolving. What kind of parents did they have? What kind of grandparents did you have? Uh, my father's parents were real cold. He came from a little bit of privilege, uh, Boston society. And they were Jews who wanted to be wasps. You know, which is also part of, I think, my father's thing. And, you know, the weird thing is, Brad, the more I – since I've written this book and I've been talking about it with people and I'm getting, like, unbelievable amounts of emails from people who are telling me, oh, my God, you know, you know I laughed so hard and then I was crying, you know. Um, and then I all of a sudden realized that you were talking about my relationship with my dad or my mom or I saw it with my brothers and didn't know what, what to do. Um, how do you get that way? And it's, I mean, I personally, like not to sound too much like a hippie, but I think, you know, life is always better when it's an expression of love. It's that simple to accept that, but choose compassion over cruelty. I like the hippies. But my parents, well, listen, they're good hippies and they're bad hippies. Yeah, yeah, I like the good hippies.
0: (laughs) But the hippies get unfairly demonized. I've said this before. Like I think, like the hippies—they don't get everything right, but they got a lot
1: right. Well, yeah, peace is better than love. Yeah, he, he, I mean, peace. I mean, peace is better than war. Sorry. Yeah. 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 yeah, I've never seen a good war. I've never seen a bad peace. Yeah, I'm with it. Yeah. Bob Marley, "One Love." I'm right, with it. Right. Right. I get it. You know, and uh, yeah, yeah, like that. Um, so, I always said it high times too. You know, I'm always. I was so pro pot. I was just anti-slacker. That was, that's where I failed at times. Yeah,
0: lethargy. I mean, who wants to just, like, you know, it's, you're not smoking pot. If you're smoking pot and you're just inert and you have nothing going on mentally, then that's not the point. Yeah, you're... no, it's, it's it's no good. It's no good. So let me ask you a question. Like, you do all this therapy. You write this book. You um, have put a lot of thought into your uh, your life, your family situation, the relationship that you have with your dad, especially, but with both of your parents. Do um, you
1: think your dad, I mean, your dad loved you in his way? Was he capable of it? Brutal question and really difficult. I think if you asked him, you'd say, sure, I love my kid. Did I experience loves? I don't know that I did. And certainly not the kind of unconditional love that I think a parent owes to their child. And I think that's, that's, that's really important. You accept your children for who they are, You know, if your son wants to be a ballerina, you take him to the ballet. I mean, that's it. If your daughter wants to play baseball, you play catch with her. Whoever they are, you need to encourage that. Um, I mean, certainly, I I get it. Like, you can't tell your kid, sure, you're going to be a great rock star, and just, you know, that's to be your plan A. But on the other hand, discouraging children is just the worst thing you can do. Yeah, I think um, my father lived in a very loveless cold Atmosphere. Certainly his parents weren't the kind of parents who could ever get on the ground and roll around with their kid toddlers. Because uh, usually this stuff is like it's an inheritance almost, and then it's passed along
0: generation to generation. You've got to break the cycle.
1: Yeah. I, you know, people always say, Mike, you know, you're such a rebel. I said, well, I don't see it that way. I mean, like a rebel, like James Dean, rebel without a cause, because that didn't end up so well, (laughs) you know, and, or or Marlon Brando, you know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? I
0: just watched, uh, I just watched uh, the documentary on Showtime called Listen to Me, Marlon. Did you see that? No, I haven't. Oh, talk about a guy who had a rough childhood. Um, It really, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a very complicated character, but the movie was uh, moving in that way. Like his mother was a drunk and his father was abusive and. Uh, physically and otherwise and just he was a lonely kid he was kind of on his own you May- know maybe uh, that's why he brings so much pathos to his work i mean he was such a brilliant actor oh no, no doubt no doubt it's all tied together but it's like man you know and and he was talking too. i think his own kids had uh, a lot of troubles you know his son mm-hmm. um spent time in prison for uh what i guess manslaughter or murder or whatever his daughter comm- right. his daughter committed suicide but there's a line in it because there's a lot of these audio recordings of marlon brando where you know i guess throughout his life he talked into a recorder And uh, almost like self-hypnosis or self-therapy. And he was, at one point he said, like, you know, I I didn't even know what to look for when it came to love. I hadn't, I'd never seen it in my childhood. I didn't know where to look for it. You know, I didn't know what it looked like. So if it was right in front of me, I wouldn't have even recognized it. And that
1: made some sense to me. It does. And I I think about my father, too. I think he was desperate for love. And I think a lot of some of the things he did were uh, acting out or or desperation, please. I think he he married my mom as quickly as he could, from what I understand, from what she had told me. They had met and, again, he was from a little bit of privilege. and He went to an Ivy League school. She came from relative poverty, my mom. What does a little bit of privilege mean? Well, I went to, like a, like, a prep school. They had a nice house. But, I mean, they weren't driving, you know, like, big flashy cars or anything like that. Right. Um, But they were definitely, like, Boston society. And it was, very, like I said, it was very waspy because I believe ethnicity was looked down upon as, as a low... Yeah. Low, I've, low heard that about Boston.
0: I've heard that about Boston. Boston's kind of a, uh, like there's got a, like a dark racial history. Uh, oh, well,
1: Boston's very segregated. Yeah. But I um, mean, we're talking about you, know, you know, upper middle class white people here, but we're talking about Jews who are trying to assimilate. My mom, her grandparents, uh, her grandparents who came over from, from Russia spoke Yiddish, and they spoke Yiddish in the house. And I never understood, you know, at some point my mom would say, okay, we're going to go to shul. You know, you know, for you know, the high holidays or whatever, and my dad would say, "No, we don't say shul. We say we go to temple or synagogue." And I never understood. We get angry, like physically, like you could see him like clench up. And I finally realized that because the Yiddish word was like a low word. It was low culture. It showed like a low ethnic ethnic class. It was a sign of being an immigrant. Hmm. You know, where that, my dad tried to hide that at all possible
0: you know times. Yeah, and no, my dad. Uh, my my last name is Sicilian, and my dad, when he was a kid, um, you know, his his father spoke Italian. His grandparents definitely spoke Italian. And I was always like, oh, my God, "Why didn't we ever learn Italian? That's a shame that we let it die." And he's like, "We couldn't speak Italian. They didn't want us to. Right? They yeah. wanted to assimilate.
1: They wanted. No, they didn't want anybody hearing them speaking Italian." And I don't know what it is. I mean, I have no. I get asked this. I mean, but I embraced it. I, I love Jewish culture, and uh, if not actual Judaism, I like the Marx Brothers, yeah. you know, and uh, <laughs> like Al Goldstein and Abby Hoffman, you know, and, and the Three Stooges. <laughs> there's see. a lot to like. There's a, there, there's a lot there's a lot there. You know, and but I want to know about it, and uh, I throw the Yiddish around. You know, there's a lot of Yiddish. In my book, because that's I'm from New York. I mean, it's what way we speak. Sure, uh, but my father always avoided it.
0: Well, I think that there's something to generationally you know, that changes. Like the more assimilated you get, the less it matters if you use those words, maybe. Or mm-hmm.
1: but the sad thing is, I, my nieces and nephews will have none of that. Yeah, that they, they won't get it at all. And uh, I mean, it's also partly this time where everything's flying by so quickly that everything's starting to look the same. You uh, know, that's a bummer, isn't it? The, just
0: the total homogenization of like city to city the, I mean, I feel like New York has some character, but I feel like there are a lot of cities in America that just sort of one could be the other almost.
1: It could be. In New York, it's being drained out of New York City, too, in a lot of ways. Uh, It's it's just sad, but everything's moving so fast. Um, Was it Paul Verilio? It's one of these, like, French new wave thinker cats that was talking about uh, the concept of velocity and, and cultural velocity, and the metaphor was, well, if you're driving down the road and you're in a horse and buggy, you see everything that's happening. You could actually say hello to people. You see every blade of grass. If you're driving in a car going, you know, 60 miles an hour, you see much less. Everything's a blur, and all of a sudden, if you're on an airplane... And you're going, you know, flying from Atlanta to Los Angeles. You see nothing. And that's the way information is coming at us right now, where there's no time to see even a blade of grass. And what are young kids, like my niece and nephew, who are post-millennial, I don't even know what the fuck they call that yeah, anymore. Yeah. But uh, they they don't know who Bugs Bunny is. They've heard of him. But they haven't seen it. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, this is like, this is like the worst thing that ever happened. They've never, they don't know anything about the Marx Brothers. My God, will they ever? I, I was mean, talking to people too. who were in their 20s who said, who had never heard of Penthouse Magazine, had heard of Playboy, but had never actually seen a copy. And then I told them, well, there are no more nude girls in it. And they're like, yeah, whatever. I guess I missed that. And
0: one day, these <laughs> these same people, when they grow up and have children, are going to be moaning the fact that their children have never heard
1: of, like, you porn or whatever the hell. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's dark times. It, it, it's troublesome. I mean, you know, talking about going to find Aretha Franklin record at, at a record store, man, I had to take a train. I had to go to the store. I was 14 years old, you know, which took maybe just a little bit of, let's put a walk around Midtown Manhattan, trying to find the record store to talk to the old hippie who knew the soul music because I saw it on TV and I had no idea what I was looking for. Find the record, get back on the train, come home, put it on this Victrola thing that I had, and literally watch the record go around. <laughs> you know, while this like crazy music, you know, came out of it, it was, like this, it was unbelievable, it was mind-boggling. And it really it had so much value to it. I had so much invested in it. At that point, also, and now it's like I want to hear something. You push your push a button, and kaboom, punk rock button. You know Beethoven button. You know wh- whatever it is. I need to you know read the Communist Manifesto. Not that anybody even would, because no one reads anymore. But whatever you want, <laughs> it's right there. You don't have to go to the library. You don't have to discuss it with a friend. And because it's so quick and free, it has no inherent value. So oh man, I really want to hear Muddy Waters, and you put it on, and you can decide in the first note that you don't like it. Yeah. Because. You don't even have to give it a chance. And, and, you know, and,
0: and, like, yeah, and then the, the track by track musical ingestion where you're listening to things song by song instead
1: of like taking in an album as a whole. That is a bummer. And the way, yeah, it, everything is. It's, no one's got time or patience for everything. Everybody's in a, in a rush. I mean, I don't want to sound like some Luddite because I'm not. I, I love the technology. The technology is amazing, but, it's not, but it's, the technology is supposed to help us. And what it's become, I believe, is, is crippling us. You know, I mean, like like our iPhones are supposed to help us, you know, but it's like it's a prosthetic at this point. You know who uses prosthetics? You know, disabled people. Yeah. Like they use a prosthetic when you're missing a leg. What would happen if someone took away your iPhone? You would feel crippled. Yeah. You know, it's not supposed to
0: be like that. Well, that's uh, that's the irony of this uh, this communication technology is that it's, you know, it's supposed to be bringing people together and making it easier for us to communicate and yet… It seems like people are more isolated,
1: and yet I keep on writing books. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck
0: I'm doing. Well, but you know, it's it's uh,
1: it's a, it's the antidote.
0: It's a, it's the slow food to the fast food. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Actually, I'm part of the slow food thing. I do my own podcast, Arts and Seizures. It's called on uh, the Heritage Radio Network, which started uh, started as sort of as anarchist food radio network based on the old slow food model in italy and we always say though the important thing to remember about slow food is the slow part happened before you cooked it right <laughs> you know <laughs> right. it's the slow food is not about cooking for eight hours slow food is making sure you have good ingredients that were cared for right you know yeah um, makes sense and that's that's important and books I don't know. you've done a lot of shit Got a lot of shit, dude. I got no regrets. Yeah, I mean, I'm really happy with the way. I mean, there's a couple deficits here and there. I mean, I, I'm very happy, but you know, I mean, there's a lot of heartbreak in my life. Well, you know, normal amount anyway, and you know, I feel a, like there's I get a lot of heartbreak every once in a while. But there's a lot of heartbreak in everybody's life eventually. Of course, it's the way it's the way it goes. So it's the way it goes. If it's not one thing, it's the other. It's not numb. You know, I remember (laughs) listening to Homer Simpson say on TV one time, he said, well, you know, son, trying is just the first step on the road to failure. I was like, oh, fuck, that's my dad. (laughs) It's not too uncommon. You know, it's tough. I got a lot of uh, spilkus about writing another book because I don't know how to sell a book. I don't think my publisher, Sterling, are wonderful, but if they knew how to make a bestseller, they'd be doing it all the time. So you put it out there, it's got to be a little bit more than just like flinging it out there and hoping it sticks, Um, which actually I should mention that we're on the road uh, touring this book and i'm having a gas and we go to bookstores i have like the greatest piano player in the world it's cat mickey finn plays piano with me and uh, bob burt who used to be in sonic youth plays drums with us pretty often um we have just great people uh tonight in, you know in la i've got a couple of local guys with me um and we come and we tell stories and i try to bring the, the book to life and really believe in this tradition of being a troubadour of going from town to town and telling stories where did you get that from like, did you
0: have somebody that you looked to that did it well and then you suddenly said, I want to do that too?
1: Well, I think my heroes are you know are guys like Bob Dylan and that's sort of what, what he does. And uh, I play in rock and roll bands and that's what we do. You go from town to town right. play, playing for people and the weird thing is there's this huge disconnect between the book world... And the kind of author events <laughs> that I want to do. We tell them always, so I'm going to read with music. There's going to be a set live soundtrack. And there's videos of it on YouTube and my website. I've been doing it for years. And I get to the bookstore. They say, OK, great. So you've got music and, and, and reading. I say, yep. And they go, well, what are you going to do first? <laughs> you, can do the, you can play music and then do the reading. And I, the piano player is rolling his eyes. And I'm saying, well, maybe let's do them both at the same time tonight and see what happens. And we work really hard to create these soundtracks. I was going to say, you've got to
0: really rehearse it.
1: We do it's, Yeah, My first uh, publisher said, what's wrong with you? Why are you really like, bringing musicians out with you? Why don't you just bring like a couple pages from your book and read from a podium like everyone else? And I'm like, that's not who I am. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm used to being on stage. I like having the mic in my hand. I like, you know, I want to I move people. You know, I really want to move people off their seats and, and entertain them, and, and entertain them. And, and I don't do boring. You know, my heroes are like Iggy Pop and James Brown, and you know, <laughs> and like your first responsibility is always to the audience.
0: I just, when you said that, I just flashed and thought of James Brown doing a literary reading. It <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It wouldn't look traditional.
1: But the thing about James Brown is, when he comes out, he's going to give you the best he's got. Yeah. And you know, if he's if he's having a fight with his wife, uh, which is entirely likely, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, or if he's got the whatever, you're never going to see that part of it yeah. while he's out there. Now, I um, saw him
0: in concert once uh, in Denver, like late in his late in his career. It was great.
1: I, I saw him late too, and I saw him a lot. One more thing, you can't do: go see James Brown. Yeah. It's sad, but that's sort of my attitude I take towards this. And here, here's what here's a sad thing though is so this guy at the bookstore says to me, man, that was fantastic." People, once people see it, they get it. They're like, "Holy cow!" That was like, "The best author event." You know, it was great. I can't believe you know what you guys were, you know did, and people were crying and laughing. You actually put effort into it, you know. And so we have so many boring author events. I just want to think, oh, well, why the fuck are you booking them then if they're boring? Because who are you really helping if you're doing that? What you're doing, all you're doing is propping up a system that rewards this sort of boring behavior I, I don't expect all authors to be good readers or good performers i'm fortunate that, 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 I, that i am uh if i weren't i would probably hire an actor to read my book for me if I, i've seen that done i had LA. to do it um cause, but why but to prop up a system where people see reading and they're like i'm not going it's a book you know no it's like no there's a book we laugh we say if we took the book out of this element the show we've been doing we probably would get more people to come because, you know, fucking illiterates, you know, (laughs) rock and roll fans or people who would otherwise like the comedy and and the heartbreak and the the pathos and the melodrama and all this stuff we do, you know, it's kind of like a staged radio play in parts. Sometimes it's very beatnik, kind of like a beatnik reading. Uh, The Jack Kerouac readings were were very influential on this when I started. Very musical. And yeah, I I love it when he worked with Steve Allen. That was a really big influence on me. Um, But people see book, author, reading, and and their eyes are just getting you know getting glazed over, because the experience has been in bookstores that bookstore events just aren't that exciting. And
0: well, they're just books. I mean, books as a as a uh, as a medium, it's a quiet experience. Usually, reading a book. I mean, I guess you can you, know, you can obviously, the artist
1: and the uh, yeah yeah. So it doesn't trans,
0: it doesn't usually translate unless you also have this musical gift, or you can you know you or like you have a you know stage presence, a, a sense of theatricality, and you can really fuse the two. But you know, if most of us tried that, it probably wouldn't work out too well, unless we had a lot of help from people who knew what they were doing.
1: Well, t- it takes a lot of work, and when we started out, we were really just—I don't know what we were reaching for. We made the first time we tried to record this for my book. I have fun everywhere I go. I did it with my friend John Spencer from the John Spencer Blues Explosion, who's you know fantastic, uh, you know producer, and he's a great friend of mine. Very very generous uh, musically guy. Very, a lot of soul, and uh, we didn't really know what we were doing. We, we made it way too complex, to be honest with you. If you listen to the CD, we spent hours on mixes and, you know, with various theremins going forwards, backwards, sideways, and really tried to do it, and finally realized I could just bring a piano player. Uh, but it took a long time to, like, really figure out the best way to present it. The first thing, we spent too much time on the music, and no one was listening to the music. It was cool. The music's great, but it's the storytelling, right? Yeah. Now we've simplified it so that the musical cues are much, much more simpler. And really, it's all focused on the narrative. And also, I'm not reading from my book. I edit it as we rehearse it. Sometimes I do a mashup of two chapters in a row. Some things that look great on the page are a mouthful of marbles when you get, you know, in front of the microphone. And it takes a lot of work. I mean, it takes a lot of work. Not everybody's going to do that. I get that. Yeah. Not everybody needs to do that. How many cities are you doing on this tour? So, uh, so it's good. Um, we had a great party in, in New York City last week. And, um, and we went to in New Jersey, my hometown. Um, and played at an old schoolhouse where they kind of do arts programming and stuff. And we do kind of there. We did kind of do kind of a long set where we talk about. We, I do from you are a complete disappointment. There's this great story about this fight my parents got into in a pizza restaurant, uh, and stories about <laughs> Elton John and David Bowie and about my dad dying and stuff. But then we do all this X-rated stuff from uh, my book Dirty, 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 and uh, talk about Lenny Bruce and a few other things. And it gets kind of blue. So, but, um, but we're st- out tonight in LA and we're on our way to Chicago, right, uh, and Milwaukee. Uh, I'll be in New York this week at um, up, up Upper West Side Barnes and & Noble, and we're doing one of our like late X-rated sets at a place called 2A. It's a bar in the East Village, and you know, we're back to New Jersey, and uh, I'm psyched to go to Chicago. We've got a big after party. That's kind of like the last date, and there'll be an after party. The gig's at uh, Quimby's, the event, but okay. with great, great bookstore, Quimby's. And, I mean, I'm a bookstore nerd. I love, I, I love books. You know, sure. That's why why I do this. I mean, all the bluster about rock and roll. I, I like books. Um, You said, uh, you mentioned David Bowie, Elton John. What what, do you, what kind of stories are you talking about? Well, well um, one of the stories I caught I caught a frisbee at a David Bowie concert, all right in 1978. Okay. So I was like 14. The Heroes tour, yeah. Okay, which may or may not seem like such a big deal catching a frisbee at a concert, but you got to remember it's like catching a baseball at the game. Oh my god, it was huge. And I'm 14, and the girl that I, that took me to this David Bowie concert, she was wearing uh, denim bib overalls and no shirt. Okay. Okay. It was, it was, um, I don't know why I got invited. It was great. It was <laughs> like her and this, like this, this, a couple other people. I was 14 there, probably like 16. Um, they thought I was like some cool kids. So they said, come with us. And she was really sweet and she held my hand. You know, You know. it, it was great. And, you know, there were beach balls flying and the frisbee comes and you always want to think that you can, you know, be cool enough and, you know.
0: David Bowie threw it. No, no, no. Oh, no just oh, like before, oh. the,
1: before the concert, you know, oh, okay. people throw frisbees and beach balls through the arena, you know, a giant cloud of smoke. I don't know. Do people still do that? Uh, It's not quite the same. Sometimes it doesn't feel. It used to feel like an event. A rock concert, you know, nineteen seventy eight was was an event. It was a real happening. It was a real gathering of the tribes. I mean, all the girls were dressed up for David Bowie, hot pants and glitter and platform shoes and you know, tight diamond dogs t-shirts. And even the guys had the Aladdin Sane makeup on. It was it was a big deal. So I, I caught the frisbee and really wanted to impress the girl who was wearing the overalls with no shirt and i was going to fling it back across the arena uh but the guy next to me takes the frisbee from me and he turns it over he says wait a second dude and he pours out this like giant pile of white dust okay right so i'm like okay so we all snorted a lot of this dust and then i flung the frisbee across the arena <laughs> at madison square garden and let me tell you throwing a frisbee across Madison Square Garden, the big open arena. It's fa- it's fantastic. Oh sure, this yeah. Utter feeling of freedom, especially when you're like you're high on cocaine, and, and especially when your head's yeah with like <laughs> these amphetamines, like. <laughs> and David Bowie's about to start, and I always remember that though as one of these great crystalline moments of growing up, because it was really about living in what I call the extreme present. I mean, you could not be more in the moment, you know, than right there with that frisbee and that dust.
0: And, that and girl. David Bowie
1: and that girl. But, you know, but never mind the girl and the dust and Bowie and the Frisbee. which what my father never understood, was that living in the moment was so important to being happy. He lived in so much fear of, of looking silly. He lived in fear of the future so much that the future became the enemy of the now, and he was no longer able to have fun. And uh, that's why I always quote Bill Hicks, who said, if you're living for tomorrow, you're always going to be a day behind.
0: Yeah. That's some deep shit, dude.
1: I think like that that's like kind of like a mic drop moment right there. <laughs> you got you take it where you find it. David Bowie, you know you know And it was a good show? Oh, are you kidding? The heroes tour was amazing as You hook up with that girl night? <laughs> no chance. No chance. No chance. Dude, <laughs> you know, I was fourteen. She held you oh yeah, you were fourteen. <laughs> I'd like to know where she is now. <laughs> you did cocaine when you were fourteen years old? Yeah, that was the first time. I don't think that was actually cocaine. I think that was kind of you know, back <laughs> speed, but then speed was a different kind of thing too. Yeah. You know, it was more like drugs have gotten like a biker hit. crank. It was sort of like okay, I'm wired, this is cool. It's like no-dose it, or you something. Know, you know what? You know, part of always I say, okay, methamphetamines are not the problem. Okay, you know what the problem is? No. Daytime television. Okay. Okay, because if you're going to be tweaking in your trailer and you're watching Judge Judy and the prices Right, it's like no <laughs> fucking shit. Your brain's going to fall out. Your teeth are going to fall out. It's bad. But if you're doing speed, see, speed is not an activity. Speed is what you do while you're doing something else. Okay? Like... Speed is good for driving trucks across the country. Sure. Speed is good for winning wars. Speed is great for playing the bass and Motorhead. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not an activity it's what you do while you're doing something else yeah certain activities
0: are not they don't uh jive yeah lsd your... is an activity yeah <laughs> you do
1: a lot of lsd I, I was enthusiastic in my youth yeah do i do a lot of lsd you know, I, myself, i've been in the fun house in the psychedelic Shack a few times yeah. has it ever did it uh like did you, did you
0: have a drug experience or is there a particular strain of drugs that had a like a, a big impact on you or bigger than
1: the others <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I think smoking pot certainly did. And the first time I smoked weed when I was like, you know, 14 or so, uh, it was definitely doors of perception. It was really that thing. I mean, getting high and going to see Monty Python and the Holy Grail for the first time, I mean, it, w- it was a revolution in my mind where, you know, being stoned and listening to Jimi Hendrix, I know it sounds like a cliche, but it really was great. And acid was really good when I was a teenager. It was like, whoa, you know, I got it all figured out. Now if I could <laughs> ah, shit, I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> um when I lived in Spain. I mean, I, I wrote about this in my books. I'm very open about it. Uh, you know, it's not a prime mover in my life anymore. I mean, whatever I was doing in Spain, I didn't sleep for three years was so much cocaine. But that's, that's where I was when I was in my 20s, playing in a punk rock and roll band in Spain. Well, sure. You know, I'm not, I'm not that guy anymore. I am that guy. I just, uh, you know, I fell in love with something else.
0: Yeah. Which is? Writing books?
1: <laughs> I like
0: writing books. You got more in you? Uh, like, yeah, oh yeah. What do you do? Are you working on one right now?
1: Um, I work. Uh, I'm supposed to be working with my friend Joe Bastianich, the restaurateur. I worked with him on his book Restaurant Man, and I'm supposed to be going to Italy uh, June to work on a new book with him. I kind of, I kind of a couple. Food you got books. a lot of, you got a lot of friends too. I feel like you know a lot of people. You know, if you, if you're not a bully, you're not a prick. You know, uh, and you know what's great. You know what's great. You know, you play in bands your whole life. That's a lot of playing nice with others. You you learn to form these long lasting like a marriage relationships. Yeah. yeah, You know, sure, you fight sometimes, but the idea is that you have to play well with others. You have to be, you know, on the team, um, and, and that, that's okay. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not one of these guys who gets jealous or angry when I see my friends becoming successful. It's like I root for my friends. Yeah, I, mean, I hate it when mediocrity is rewarded. That always kind of sucks. But I, I root for my friends, and that's you know. It's part of the secret to success, I guess. I think so. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I never get the uh, oh my, you know, my friend. Like, what, what's the Gore Vidal quote? Gore Vidal. Every, every time a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. Yeah,
1: that's not. I don't. I don't get that. I always thought that was one of those German philosophers, and I had looked it up. It's <laughs> like, oh, Gore Vidal. Fuck.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think there are people who are like that, and he was probably one of them, uh, since he said it. But uh, you know, that's a brutal. That's a brutal way to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And with my dad, I think every time I was successful he somehow took this as like a swipe at him, Uh, you know, because he did not the kind of success that I had was certainly not the kind of success. He could trot out at a cocktail party and brag to his friends. Oh, look, my kids, you know, you know, the publisher of the dope magazine, you know, (laughs) or my kids in his punk rock band, you know, he's playing in Tokyo this week, which I think is pretty hot. But, um, the weird thing is even like, no matter what it was, I could not catch a break. I came to classical music very, uh, later in life. Hopefully it's not very late in life. I, (laughs) (laughs) I think I got a ways to go. I hope so. Um, but I kind of discovered like like classical music like when I was like forty years old in my late thirties. Sort of it came to me in a very weird way. I was watching Jackass, one of those Jack, you know, the movie, yeah, right, and there's like a Johnny sh- Knoxville, yeah, yeah, Johnny Knoxville, yeah, and a huge like bombastic symphony on the soundtrack. And I, and I was kind of stoned. I'm like, that's awesome. I got <laughs> I to gotta, I gotta make a note to listen to more big bombastic symphonies. Yeah. You know, I'm just so sick of loud electric guitars. And I'm a big jazz fan anyway, so it wasn't that much of a leap from like Duke Ellington to Mozart, really. So I went out and I bought all these Mozart you know, stuff and tried to figure that out because that's you know, a real – real can of worms you know to try to sort out what Beethoven to buy you know I mean sure maybe oh yeah the Ninth Symphony but there are like 4,000 versions of it yeah um, and I slowly and I figured it out I got into it and you know and then I hustled a gig writing for one of the local arts papers like uh, doing um review coverage of the classical music scene in New York um Really, more like previews for upcoming stuff at Carnegie Hall and the New York Philharmonic, and they loved me because I was writing about it in rock and roll terms. And I, I talk about this, and you are a complete disappointment. Where I'd be talking about Mahler, but it would, I'd sort of be talking about like, you know, why Mahler rules and Roger Waters sucks. <laughs> you know, but it's also, and, know, but also, people loved it. They, they were like, "This is exciting." Well, know? it's also
0: accessible. You're not some academic guy who loves, you know, who studied the history. Of I'm not trying of- to
1: show you how smart I am. I'm trying right. to bring you into this so you can enjoy it, and, yeah. and you know, and okay, I'm being a bit of a heel, you know, I root for the bad guys in pro wrestling because I'm putting down Pink Floyd while I'm propping up Mahler, but they loved it because they said no one's ever written that before, people are talking about it. So I told my old man, my dad, he said, oh, I love classical music. I said, oh, no, that's great because, you know, I'm really... I'm really, really into it now, and he says, "Well, it's a very expensive hobby. First, first of all, like, like you can't be part of my club, right? It's too expensive. You can't afford it, which is a weird thing. You can't afford to what? Listen to the radio, <laughs> yeah. you know? To, I can't afford to listen to like Beethoven. It's like, but that's his thing because he used it as you know a tool for his you know, you know uh, social climbing. Yeah. So I said, "Well, as a matter of fact, uh, it's actually I got this great deal. It's a total hustle. I've been writing for the local arts." Paper about classical music and they've been giving me free tickets and it's great and and I I go all the time which you know he's sort of looking at me because damn damn he's getting in there someone let him in and and I I said oh I just saw I was just at Carnegie Hall last week I saw a part of the Stravinsky cycle which he responded, Stravinsky is dissonant. I don't like him, and I don't know one who does. <laughs> it's like, man, I can't win. Could
0: not catch a break with that right? guy.
1: I said, well, you know, Beethoven uses a lot of uh, dissonance in, in his music. I'm thinking specifically um, the 3rd, 5th, 7th, and symphonies and the later string quartets, plus also certain parts of the piano, uh, blah, blah, blah. Right? I mean, <laughs> you know, he's like, no, Beethoven is not. There was no winning, you know? Yeah. I mean, there was just no winning with the guy because he could not join his club. And I This was, though, you got to understand, Brad, this, me telling that to my dad, was not me showing off or whatever. It was really trying to say, look, here's some common ground that we can talk about. Okay. Finally, maybe here's something we could enjoy together because a boy does, you know, for all the jokes I'm telling him for all the bluster, a boy does want acceptance from, his dad. Of course. And you wait your whole freaking life to hear him say, son, I'm proud of you, or that's wonderful. Uh, wow, you wrote a book. You know, that, that's, that, that's great. Oh, shit, yeah. That, that, that's great. Oh, man, you know, your your, your band's going on, on tour in, in, in Japan, you know, that, that, that's great, you know? You snorted cocaine off a of Frisbee that's, at a I, Bowie I, show. I know, it's awesome, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and it was like, no, it's like, wow, the, 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 a paper, a newspaper in New York hired me to write about classical music. It's, it's wow. really, Mm. really, you know, and that's, that's where where it ends. I'm you know, you are a complete disappointment. And now it's out on bookshelves. And uh, and where better books are sold, one hopes. And, uh, if I can, um, ask people to please find me on MikeEdison.com because all the tour dates are up there and there's some cartoons and there's some rock and roll music and uh, it's, it's, you know, all the stuff I do.
0: Well, listen, congratulations on it uh, and on everything that you're doing and I wish you all the best going forward.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. This is exactly what I imagined in LA Podcast. <laughs> I wish people could should, should be on TV. This is what people should <laughs> see, should see where we are. Here. I can yeah. kayfabe it, okay? <laughs> I, I can kayfabe it, you know? It's unbelievably like like, like, like gilded soundstage. You it know? is, it and this is good and, um, let's, why don't we go hit the craft services? <laughs> yeah, let's go do that. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Brad.
0: Okay. That's the show. Mike Edison, his memoir is called You Are a Complete Disappointment, available now from Sterling Books. You can find him on the internet at uh, MikeEdison.com. He's on Facebook and his Twitter handle is at Mr. Mike Edison. I was uh, operating with a sense of urgency At the top of the show I am now uh, Operating With heat stroke This is what the heat does to you Sapped of all energy Slowly draining My life force Slowly draining from my body Thank you to Kill Rockstars As always for the good music Be sure to check out Killrockstars.com Don't forget that this podcast, the other people with Brad listy podcast has its own free app. It has an app. It has its own official app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's the other people with Brad listy app. It's the best way to listen to the show. You know how that works, right? You go get the app. The app is free. You get that app on your phone or your device. And the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50 episodes of this show are always available free. And then if you want to get at the Deep Archives, if you want to hear all of the episodes, more than 400 and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. It's a great way to support the show. My goodness, would I appreciate that. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. I think that's it. I've got literally four minutes. I've got four minutes to wrap this up. Close my computer and evacuate. Four minutes left before I lose consciousness. I'm sorry, I just nodded off. Please remember that Ronald Reagan was a clandestine informer for the FBI when it was investigating so-called left-wing influences in Hollywood in the 1940s, and that St. Gildas the Wise of Wales, shortly before he died, asked that his remains be placed in a small boat and set adrift at sea. That is it for now. Uh, Go get Mike Edison's new memoir, You Are a Complete Disappointment. Thanks to Mike for being such a good guest. Thanks to you guys for listening and being such good listeners. You're such a good listener. I think you're a good listener. Are you multitasking? Are you doing seven things while kind of listening to this? It's okay. You can listen however you want. I got to go. The music's over. I'm leaving. I'm going to save myself.